Movie is proud to present Lover for a Day, the latest film from veteran auteur Philippe Garel, starring his daughter Esther Garel in a stunning breakout performance. An elegantly crafted tale of desire, friendship, and fidelity, named one of the top 10 films of the year by Caillou du Cinema, Lover for a Day opens January 12th exclusively at the Film Society of Lincoln Center. The Sundance Film Festival is returning to Park City, Utah, January 18th through the 28th. Check out the newly announced program of world premiere films, virtual reality, and events at sundance.org festival. Passes and ticket packages are available now, and tickets go on sale in early January. Hello and welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. My name is Violet Luca, and I'm the digital producer. Back in December, we held a discussion in front of an audience at the Film Society of Lincoln Center about the grim realities of working in the film industry, the hashtag MeToo movement, how we deal with problematic art, and previous attempts at dealing with sexual assault and inequality. I was joined by Molly Haskell, author of From Reverence to Rape, The Treatment of Women in the Movies, and regular critic to Film Comment, Monica Castillo, the film writer for the New York Times is watching, and Elisa Ma, head programmer at Metrograph Theater. Here's our conversation. Please note that Elisa joins the conversation halfway. As an expert on the classical era, how would you characterize how harassment was handled back then? Because, I mean, it's a, now it seems like there's cert- the veil is being lifted from the sort of complicity and silence by men and women mm. of in all sort of uh you know below the line above the line whatever you want to call it um how was it you know do you feel like that has progressed well you know it did happen in the studios people have pointed out all these moguls this was a sort of tradition i think it's a tradition that, that harvey weinstein aspired to yeah know, the, <laughs> the, gro- the, the grossest uh, profile of the mogul but i was watching and people just sort of i don't know they shrugged it off I was watching a movie, Love Affair, from 1939 with Irene, Bo- uh, with Irene Dunn and Charles Boyer, and she's a singer. He's the painter. You know, this is the one of the Empire State Building, and they missed the, the rendezvous. But he's asking her at one She's a sort of single girl in New York. She doesn't have, have a lot of sec- job security. She's at a nightclub, and he asks her what she does, and she said, well, I sing from 1 a.m. to 3 a.m., and then the boss, the manager chases me around his office from 3 a.m. to 4 a.m., and then I go home, and, you know, it was sort of... I th- when I first saw it, I thought, well, the women knew how to say, you know, that they, they had the leverage to say no somehow on those days. And I thought probably it was really an ugly reality that they were sort of making a joke of. Yeah. You know? So, yeah. yeah, it went on. And now, I mean, this is what's exciting about this groundswell of now women don't have to, I mean, women can now come and come out with these stories, which have been so hard for, you know, what I, I can't get over is how the, the sort of willful inability of the public to understand why women delay well don't come forward yeah and that's the message that has to be sort of driven home over and over again how Mm -hmm. difficult it is Monica oh no I I wholly agree with everything Molly said but um, it's also been interesting for me just to hear the conversations around uh, this topic that there are still people uh, generally male who do not believe or they doubt the stories or that they're shocked Mm -hmm. that there's you know so many quote-unquote you know creepers out there um, and it's kind of sad that you know we've had these stories, and we sometimes pass down um, 
to the next generation? Are we, you know, trying to warn our friends, like, oh, you know, don't go with that guy. He's kind of, you know, sketchy. And, you know, we've always had to have that sort of sense of awareness. And now we're being open and public about it. Yeah, and I want to address that because, um, you know, there's this hashtag Me Too going on and sort of talking about, you know, all women from all types of industries talking, being very open, men too, being very open about the, you know, abuse, harassment they have received. And I, I mean, this is anecdotal, but I know from people, I, I have a friend who works at the uh, Alamo Draft House in Charlottesville. God help her, um, but she uh, she told me that uh, you know somebody from the company came to address the allegations you know about uh, prominent men associated with them, um, Devin Faraci and also um, Harry Knowles. How could I forget him? Uh, such a charmer. But uh, most of the people there were not like just like people working in the theater were not aware of this the issue and they sort of wrote it off as internet outrage and i guess to what extent do, do things like me too which happen mostly on the internet help or hurt progress and help people help or hurt people understand the nuances around this issue i think it's a step in the right direction we get to share our stories we try we we make them less of a taboo so we mm -hmm. take the shame the sense of shame away from that um, but there's also a kind of sense that Me Too doesn't always extend to everybody. Right. And uh, we're kind of seeing that with uh, Terry Cruz's case, mm -hmm. where uh, some of his friends are, you know, kind of shying away from him or not giving him the support that we're seeing uh, women get. And then uh, another series that went up recently was about how undocumented workers are not able to say Me Too right. because they're afraid to approach the cops because then they can be deported. Mm -hmm. So it's also recognizing that there's still a lot of work to be done. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I, I think that, oh, yeah, sorry. the Me Too, the me too sorry. <laughs> I, I think I have such a loud voice that I don't need this, but I guess I do. Um, Amy Tobin, who was supposed to be here, unfortunately couldn't be, said, we, we had a brief email uh, back and forth before this, and she said she was sort of dubious about the Me Too tag. It, it just smacked of, I don't know which, what her words were, but it's sort of a get on the bandwagon, and also the idea of women, this is something that's bothered me sometimes too, sort of learning to be victims again. Um, mm -hmm. She pointed to the handmaiden's tale, which I also didn't like at all. I don't mm -hmm. understand why people are seeing this as somehow an echo or you know, somehow relevant to, to this whole subject. And I think, I, I'm, I think the groundswell has been fantastic. I think we have, to, the, the danger is, you know, people used to talk about compassion fatigue, where mm -hmm. they could be like harassment fatigue. Mm -hmm. And to sort of move on and, and make it a larger, I mean, it's not just, look at, I mean, women in, in Afghanistan and India have it a lot worse than we do. So um, somehow I think we need to go forth and, and, and figure out how we're going to deal with it. And that, that's the big mystery. But I, and I think we could start with Congress. With what I mean, I think that the thing that, that, that outraged me the most that came out of all this was that the systematic, the system that Congress has for dealing with this, mm -hmm. which is to, to do a, an investigation which nobody, which is never re revealed to anybody, to pay hush money out of taxpayer money. I mm -hmm. mean, this was institutionalized right. in Congress, and it's just so we could start there. Right, know? but I mean, I mean, that's very, you know, what you just described is also very much how things seem to have worked in the film industry too, mm -hmm. where, but instead of taxpayer money, it's people, you know, money people pay to see movies or listen to music or what have you. So, I mean, I guess. What, how would you assess you know, previous attempts to deal with it? I mean, has there really, I mean, or what's happening now, I guess? 
Well, I think the, situa the, the, the landscape is so different because they really were, I mean, when I grew, uh, grew up, it, it was still sort of quasi-Victorian. I mean, mm -hmm. it was just before the sexual revolution, all right, on the brink of the sexual revolution. And, and the thing is, I mean, it, it may have been less fun, and it was less, you know, it was certainly less, uh, less of a sort of libertine, free-for-all sexuality, but women had the power to say no. Now, I think that's sort of no longer the case. Young girls, to be popular, have to, you know, ha maybe have sexual activity before they're ready for it. I mean, you, you can't close the barn door, it's too late, but it's just such a different situation where sexual appetites uh, are, are, are deemed, you know, they have to be gratified instantaneously. I, I, I mean, I, I just think the whole um, sort of open season on sexual activity it, it leaves very little ground for, I mean, we need more repression in a way, you know? <laughs> that was a dirty word when I came along with, you know, <laughs> really that's what, or I mean, if people can't control themselves then maybe we need sort of, you know, out, out some kind of checks and balances. We don't have those, I mean, we used to have a social structure that absolutely inhibited all these things. You mm -hmm. had rules in colleges and people didn't, couldn't drink that much. So all of these things have happened and you can't close the barn door, but how do we deal with it? I really, it's, it's, it, it, I really don't know. <laughs> So I guess I'll yeah. do the, yes, the, the point counterpoint. Person. Let's hear it from a younger well, person. Um, I believe, I think we need to have a little bit more openness because I also grew up in like a very um, kind of Christian household where, you know, just all sex was bad. Mm -hmm. And when I went to school, all the sex education was, you know, how you were going to die from STDs yes. um, or get pregnant. And I don't think that helps anyone. So mm -hmm. being open with, yeah. uh, with younger mm -hmm. folks and also telling women or men as well, like when to assert themselves and when to say, no, this is not what I'm comfortable with. What is their boundaries? Be open about that discussion. And if something does happen, don't put them in the position where like, this is your fault. Mm. Right. Well, I think, I think, you know, I think you're sort of advocating a third way as opposed yeah. to like a total like Victorian no, 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 repression. Yeah. Um, because I mean, for me at least, I mean, I know definitely, um, I'm a little bit older than you, but I definitely remember sort of like the early days of, you know, the Bush era where, you oh, know, yeah. sex ed was just sort of like on total lockdown. And what was interesting to me, and I read this many years later, was that what really has helped like curb teenage um, pregnancy rates was the MTV show Teen Moms. And it's like, <laughs> and that's like, and it was clearly doing, it was, it's clearly doing something that, what was the message <laughs> well, it was just followed, it was just a reality show that followed uh -huh. teenage mothers. Uh -huh. And it just showed how shitty it is. Oh, really? How hard it was. And how hard it is. Yeah, that's, it, <laughs> when I say shitty, I mean hard, yeah, and that's yeah, not yeah, a judgment. Yeah. Um, but it's just like, it just, um, that was so much more effective than what was going on in schools because, I mean, fundamentally, what is um, sex ed class? It's just an hour once a day, but, you know, MTV, it makes, it's like, hey, you know what's cool? Not this. This is really hard. This is not, <laughs> nothing about this is fun. So, I mean, it's, it's, it, it's, it's in, that's interesting to me because, it, you know, again, in this era where we have so many different streams, so many different, we're bombarded with all these crises, there's still, media still has a power to shape narratives in people's lives, but, before we continue on that point, here's Elisa Ma. Hi, everyone. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know what's really difficult is getting to the Upper West Side from the Lower East Side and relying on the MTA. <laughs> sorry, it's entirely, uh, I'm very sorry. My name's Elisa, and uh, please allow me to glide seamlessly <laughs> into this talk. Yeah, yeah, no, we were just um, talking about the issue of Me Too and sort of how that ties into, you know, P 
people's perceptions of themselves and sexuality and um, yeah, all sorts of stuff. So I mean, how would you assess Me Too? Do you feel like that is something that is available to you to use? Or do you, you know, as someone who still, you know, because I, I mean, I feel like there, for some people, it's not entirely accessible, not just because, you know, there aren't first protection, there aren't First Amendment rights to your job or, you know, it's just a simple matter of like, I want to keep working because, um, you know, to quote Manola Dargis in the new, uh, forward to your book, Molly, women love movies even when movies don't love them. Yes, I, um, I do feel that, you know, we're, I, I feel pretty grateful to be like living in a time when this um, is a topic that we can discuss openly um, or more openly than um, it's been before. Um, but uh, I also feel like um, it, it, the hashtag Me Too is something that rose out of um, you know the spectacle of something exploding on the internet, and um, there's a hyperbolic quality to it that hopefully once the spectacle dies down, then we're left with a space where we can actually reckon with our own thoughts a little bit because um, I find that it's it's you know it's as easy it is as it is to throw a hashtag or, you know into my timeline it's also um, difficult to sometimes feel like there's a space for ambiguous feelings um, yeah. not only towards um, what's happening in the dominant discourse but also what's you know feeling about what has happened in my own life mm -hmm. um, so yeah yeah. And, and kind of to co-sign with that, not everyone is ready to share their story. Mm -hmm. yeah. So it's really up to that person to do that. But to go back to kind of what you were saying about uh, the draft house issue, I know of another person who works at an art house theater who, because that all fallout was happening and it was very public, they then revisited their own you know, sexual harassment policies and found out that none, there was nothing in their books. Mm. So they went back and they started working on it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, I yeah I, I I don't know. It's it's we keep coming back to this issue. It seems of like you know, or at least me too. With me too, I think there's sort of this value again. Like Lisa, you were sort of saying that there is sort of a value put on um, certain actions, and you know, a lot of this stuff. I think uh, it's a gray area. So a lot of sexual harassment is just sort of in this weird, and not just like a legal gray area, but just in a gray area in your mind. But you know, it's not like there seem there there seems to be this desire, at least, to you know have a punishment. Let's say, let's say we're going to punish Woody Allen, we're going to punish Harvey Weinstein, and it's like there's no, you know, pervert island that we can send them to. Um, uh, even though we may want there to be one. And now there is this website called Rotten Apples where you can type in a film and you can see which you know sexual assaulters, if there are any allegations against people who were in it. And it's like, so are you not going to watch Frida because uh, Jeffrey Rush and Harvey Weinstein who are deeply involved in that uh, you know, have numerous allegations against both of them? Like it seems like sort of the wrong, it seems there's this weird 
wrongness to a lot of the way the approach has happened. And again, because it is mostly happening on the internet, on Twitter, where it's like, you know, punish, 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 judge, yeah. judge, judge very quickly. Well, yeah, I, I, I think that's true. People will always say, well, like the people that boycott Woody Allen, well, I can never look at his films the same way again. Well, why should you look at them the same way again? Why should you look at any film the same way again? Mm -hmm. Films change, we change, we look at them differently. Now they carry a burden, they may carry a burden of some kind of sexism or even abuse. Well, that's part of the story. You can still watch the film. But also I think, you know, you, Aliza mentioned contradiction, and this is something I'm always interested in, the contradictions. In fact, Manola in that piece expressed the, the feeling that I've always, how hard it is to, to sort of to bring an ideological template to films mm -hmm. to judge them because there's so many contradictory things going on. And somebody recently asked me to do a piece on Gone with the Wind in 2017. <laughs> and um, so I started out, a Memphis theater actually um, decided not to cancel the showing of the film. And I said, well, I, I wouldn't go to bat for showing it. And this is maybe not the right time to show it. Um, mm. I wouldn't b give a full-throated <laughs> thing of that. But I don't, at the same time, I don't think it should be torn down like one of the monuments, you know, one of the Confederate monuments. Mm -hmm. And it's too sort of rich and interesting and vital anyway. And I, one of the scenes I described, I mean, the feminists were um, outraged by the so-called rape scene mm -hmm. when Rhett Butler goes up to Scarlet and, and has her. And she ends up smiling. And I said, I wouldn't put that in a, in a, a movie today, but I wouldn't take it out of that movie right. ever. Because, I mean, this is a woman, to, to go to the, the film itself, who's a character who's, who's independent, who's struggled to keep her family alive, who's just fierce and smart and independent and probably frigid. Mm -hmm. And then here's this man who she so doesn't quite admit that she loves, and he overwhelms her. And about the same time, um, at, at some point during the 70s, I did end up writing for Ms. and I did a piece on women's so-called rape fantasy. This was a mm -hmm. term that was going around then. And I said, well, it's w women have a rape fantasy. It's not that they want to be you know, a attacked by a stranger in a dark alley. They want Robert Redford not to take no for an answer. <laughs> so I think this, is, this speaks to something in women. I mean, this is the problem with the idea of negotiating sex. Mm -hmm. it, it's, it's, a fine, it's a fine idea, and yet I think something in us doesn't want to do it, and something I mean, sexual fantasies in and of themselves are unruly and anti, they're irrational and they go against ideology. But the idea of being desirable and being um, wanted uh, mm -hmm. and taken by a man, still, I mean, there's still a longing, I think, in women for that. And then, but how do you draw the line? So I just think we have to at least confront these ambivalences. Yes, I, I think that as protectors of um, this kind of culture, and um, the history of this culture, um, we need to be aware um, enough to maintain a space that allows for this kind of moral ambiguity, as Molly um, said. And there seems to be sort of this feedback loop mm -hmm. um, that exists in an echo chamber of, you know, online reactions, which are very hyperbolic. And yeah. I understand the violence of this rupture. Yeah. I understand the need for that violence. Um, but then that is um, fed back by sometimes opportunistic journalism. Um, yeah. and, and then it's fueled by the entertainment industry because there's a hypocrisy in sort of calling out certain icons, right. but meanwhile, like, not if, not if they're making Baffle Box Office. Right, yeah. <laughs> right, 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 right. right. Um, and so it just seems to be like a feedback loop that seeks to exploit a hysteria and uh, we need to be mindful of, you know, sort of an impartial pursuit of justice right. and also at the or same time being protective of 
you know, the history of this art form. Or that there is a perfect justice that can be carried out, and it's right. like, no, this is, you know, a sports team can win the Super Bowl. Like, the, the best football team wins the Super Bowl. That's easy. The best film of the year, that's something that's always going to be up for debate, because no one is ever going to agree about this. And it just seems like when you're dealing with art, you have to kind of, thr you have to sort of put other things out of your mind, and film yes. is definitely one of the, you know, it's, it's always going to be like that, yeah. But I think with even just Gone with the Wind, historical context counts so Absolutely. much mm -hmm. around that conversation. Mm -hmm. and, and right now, it just needs to be there. Mm -hmm. uh, without it, if it's just presented. No, it needs without, to be contextualized. Yeah. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. So the question is not whether or not to show the film, I guess. Um, There's just a question that I've been facing a lot well, in yeah. recent months. Um, but how to contextualize it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. And I guess in your role as a programmer, how much, um, and again, because we are living in this environment, as you very correctly note, where there are there is this predilection to sort of turn things and be like, well, this is the film we need right now. This is the film we don't need right now. This is a problematic film right now. And like, you know, it, in terms of the things that you, you know, the reactions you have got to your programming, how do you feel this sort of, um, feasting has sort of impacted because I mean again it's like at the end of the day like you're a woman just trying to make movies happen and make things nice and so, so I don't know right it's yeah and and you know when you when you're programming something you want to approach it in a holistic way and mm -hmm. I think what um, we want to be careful of is to um, never ever veer into the realm of censorship for mm -hmm. its own sake um, and I hear this being discussed a lot, and a lot of people you know, have this reaction to certain, seeing certain films in the programs and, and saying, why are you showing works by this man? Mm -hmm. you know? And it is an interesting question, and I hope that um, through the program, um, more questions are raised and more discussions are opened up as opposed to closed off. Um, right. Because it is sort of this like age-old debate of like whether bad men make bad art, or right. you know, and, and well, I whether think it's important to us because we all love film and we, we our allegiance to film. It's very important to keep expressing that against this kind of this sort of blanket ideological approach to film, Absolutely. or this, this sort of reflex of boycotting or, or condemning out of hand. Mm -hmm. I think it's a hard argument to make sometimes, but it has to be made. Absolutely. Argument. Yeah. I I just don't. I mean. All movies are not going to agree with all people, mm -mm. Yeah. so it, it makes your job even more important to be able to program those films to bring them to people for maybe them to agree with or disagree with, mm -hmm. and for the films that are quote unquote problematic that you get to address that. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yes, I think that uh, it's not just sexism but racism and mm -hmm. a lot of isms that are just like deeply embedded uh, in the films, you know, in their text and in their subtext and. Uh, you know, depending on the context of the film program, it's it's sort of our job to tease those things out and really, really open up discussions around them. And it is important to keep remembering how deeply ingrained, I mean, for thousands and thousands of years that, that we've accepted the idea of male superiority, mm -hmm. and men aren't gonna let that go. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and I think, I mean, there was a, a really good piece in the Times about a year or so ago by a man who'd been on Wall Street, and it was about, suddenly having this moment where, he, you know, the guys were making sexist jokes about women or, or analyzing their attributes. And he said, you know, you almost had to, if you didn't laugh, 
you were a pariah. I mean, right. to be one of the guys, you had to laugh, and it was the way, I mean, how do you distinguish yourself as a man by setting yourself apart from women mm -hmm. and by relegating them to some kind of inferior position where you evaluate them all? And he said he suddenly thought of his daughter. Now, this is what I wondered. Do these men never think of their daughters? <laughs> I mean, I hate, I, that's my worst. I yeah, hate that so much. What? Um, never never think of their wives, never think yeah, of yeah. mothers them as, as human beings. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. As human beings. I just, it's, it's a willful kind of denial, but but anyway, I think um, I, I think this is it. How ingrained this is. We have to, I, and the, you know, I mean, for years everybody's been saying we need more women in, in director. We need more women here, and nothing happened. Nothing, and then this convulsion. It's like a war. This was like a war. It was like ISIS tearing down the monuments. Only maybe a salutary ISIS. We hope. <laughs> you know? I mean, it's tearing down the monuments, and and, mm -hmm. and and it really was a kind of collective awakening. That, that nothing before that, that you can't just decree w to have more women. This is something like this had to happen, and how can we, you know, make the most of it? That's because <laughs> they there was a movement somewhat like that towards the late seventies and eighties, mm. right, where the yeah. uh, women took on the directors' guild, right, mm -hmm. and then yeah. not, we've seen like almost nothing came of it. Yeah. Right. And I and in, at least for me, I feel like that comes from the industry trying to deal with it on its own. Because then you get things like the CBS Diversity Showcase, where it's just people. You know, the gay man has to be really effeminate. The black woman has to be this total caricature of what a black woman is like, and it just doesn't work. And I think um, again. I'm not totally down with everything happening around Me Too, but I do think that, again, this opening up is really crucial and that we can have these conversations and we can deal with um, disgusting art made by disgusting men. I don't think all art has to be pretty um, it has to, or has to fit this uh, rubric. That's always my favorite question when somebody finds out my credit. What do you think is good art? Um, Ugh, I don't know, I don't have my checklist with me, but it's like, it's one of those things that, you know, again, like creating a conversation and sort of, you know, challenging yourself and being really honest and yeah, like Molly, you were saying, like the whole, um, you know, rape fantasy question, like you do have to sometimes dig into something that is utterly horrible to watch to really understand certain things about yourself and that's the power of art. Yeah. You can't get that with a math problem, but um, I guess following um, up is important like yes. following up and following through and being accountable on both sides mm -hmm. and I think that's one of the dangers of like this internet culture is that it turns over so quickly yes and yeah. um, every day you know there's there's like a new new story being unfolded um, but mm -hmm. but do we follow through with what is happening on the in the bigger picture right you know and like as you say w uh, there's a danger that you know people fall into just quota checking especially mm -hmm. in the big studio yeah. films where you know basically there's no one voice behind it it's sort of this ma machine churning out content right you know um can we have form and content <laughs> <laughs> at the same time and be you know aesthetically aware and um add to this rich history of the art form but at the same time you know bring a sort of corrective uh to it. Yeah, definitely. Well, also, I think um, that women need to take themselves seriously, and I think that for the most part they are, but I think this is where I get into trouble with people, and it's okay because I'm a geezer, I can say whatever I like. <laughs> <laughs> but um, there was a big um, kerfuffle after Wonder Woman where a, a male critic got in trouble for, for speaking lasciviously <laughs> about the <Yes>. star. <laughs> Not the first time he had done no, that. I know, I know. Oh, but no. I mean, I, my feeling is well, first of all, women, uh, we are. We, 
just by definition, we have to we th we have to think about how we look in a way that men never quite do, mm -hmm. and attractiveness, physical attractiveness is part of it. So that this that's always there that we, is something we have to deal with. But I think the way you dress, I mean, I think if you if women dress provocatively, then they're going to provoke. I mean, how else? Is somebody to respond if they, if they do, you know, if you lead with the boobs and the butts, then, you know, somebody, a man is going to respond that way. And so people, I don't know, I didn't say it in exactly those terms, but on Twitter, people just got furious that, yes, yeah, I mean, that there is such a thing as testosterone. I mean, there are biological urges, there are unruly desires, and, and I think that, that, you know, we have to sort of take that into account. Yeah. Right, but in a review, I'm not exactly looking for your kinks. I want to hear more about the movie. <laughs> well, I don't yeah. know. What yeah, yeah I know. I, there's, there's, a, there's definitely a line to saying something about the attractiveness or even commenting on the fact that, wow, Wonder Woman had a little bit more clothes when I remembered her in the mm -hmm. 70s yeah. versus how she yeah. is now. Um, but I don't think that critic hit that mark. And uh, granted, I do think maybe the internet outrage was like very oh, yeah. fast and over probably a little overkill, Over, especially yeah, when yeah. it started going for other people, including yeah. other women. Yeah. Um, that's when no, it really I, became I a problem. I, mean, I remember John Simon used to, it was, it would do these horrible reviews about women in the theater and in movies. I mean, we have it with Rex Reed, yeah. we can, we can yeah. keep going no, no, through no, terrible, I'm, I'm, bad <laughs> male critics. <laughs> but who Let's respects Rex Reed? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, it's not a nice thing to say, but you know. But you know what, I was thinking just coming over here, I'd just been looking at CNN or MSNBC, but I think it's a, one of the great things in movies this year is that there are a lot of older women in them. And I think when mm -hmm. you look at these, at these cable news shows, all the women are kind of not quite babes, but they're all young and beautiful. And there are, there are older men. There are never older women mm -hmm. on there. And I think it would dilute the cupcake factor, you know, if you really had a, a, a little... I mean, I think this is the problem. We live in a, a, a telegenic world where mm -hmm. everybody has to be ready for their close-up. And, and this is a problem. But don't you think that... It would be sort of more interesting if there were more women in television that looked like, you know, that weren't babes. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. No, and I think it's ridiculous that, you know, Barbara Walters had to have, you know, a lot of surgery done to maintain a semi-youthful appearance. And, 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 yeah, and young women say, well, I can't grow old then. I mean, it's just yeah. the message is you, you don't dare grow old. Right. Yeah. yeah. Well, Annette Bening, uh, who's... I think a total babe. Yes. You know, is, you know she, Annette Benning. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, yes. I mean, <laughs> I mean even the non babes are babes, right? Yeah. 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 Well, that's what I mean, and that's the problem, right? It's like, that's always the classic problem where it's like, oh, the, the nerd takes off her glasses and let them under her, and she's beautiful. It's like, well, of course, she was always beautiful. She was just wearing glasses. <laughs> like, it's fine. It's a, you know, it's a, it's a time old trope, and I think. Um, well, I do think it's true yeah. that people like, Annette Bening and, and Julianne Moore, who mm -hmm. are really allowing themselves, we are mm -hmm. watching them grow old in, yeah. in a most magnificent way, and they're, and they're not doing a lot of artificial stuff, mm -hmm. and there's something very exhilarating about that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, just to briefly return to the Wonder Woman thing, you know, mm -hmm. this is this is the sort of echo chamber that I'm talking about, because one guy's like, oh, he's all lascivious, and then everyone jumps on him. And everyone's like, oh, you can't say that. But ultimately, the discourse is all around Wonder Woman, yeah. right. uh, a, a movie that is like, I mean, I don't know how many people so, saw it. And I'm sorry if anyone really likes it, but it's just not a real movie. It's not feminist. And no, it's not I like, agree. it wasn't like they, they spend so little time on Themyscira, 
like agreed like they the whole movie and then they go on to defend world war one it's like the worst yeah. it's like are you how is why did you pick wonder woman for this mission i think exactly. that conversation about whether or not it's feminist is a little bit more interesting yeah. than whether or not her costume is offensive mm. right i mean but then again it comes down to i mean you know we can get mad at a man for expressing a p- opinion that is incorrect however we do have to keep in mind that there are probably a lot of men who feel that way too, and they're just keeping cool. <laughs> they're just keeping their poker face on. And I mean, and and I think again, part of the uh, you know our roles as feminist critics, feminist programmers, uh, just women in the world, is to sort of you know poke and prod and be like, hey, maybe this could be better. And again, the internet does provide a way to sort of you know as hellish as it can be, does sort of you know clearly some se- some sectors are listening or interested because it is free market research. Right, and you do, well, and you do get to hear from groups that used to never have a platform. Exactly. Movie is proud to present Lover for a Day, the latest film from veteran auteur Philippe Garel. Fresh from its premiere in Cannes and its official selection by the 55th New York Film Festival, Garel's latest elegantly crafted tale of desire, friendship, and fidelity stars his daughter, Esther Garel, in a stunning breakout performance. Hailed as bittersweet and intoxicating by the film stage and sensuous by the New York Times, and named one of the top 10 films of the year by Caillou du Cinema, Lover for a Day opens January 12th exclusively at the Film Society of Lincoln Center. Plus, catch Esther Gorel for an in-person Q&A opening weekend. Details at filmlink.org. The Sundance Film Festival is returning to Park City, Utah, January 18th through the 28th. Check out the newly announced program of world premiere films, virtual reality, and special events. Plus, get the lowest rates on lodging at sundance.org festival. I think the, the important thing to keep in mind that is is an art form, and yeah. it is form and content. And so looking at that film is utter, you know, it just looks like mud. I'm sorry, <laughs> it's so ugly. Even though there are beautiful women in it, you know, dressed in very Baroque costumes, and they're, you know, but, it, but it's, it's not visually sumptuous in the way mm-hmm. that it could be. Anyway, what I'm what I'm trying to say <laughs> is that you know really don't the, like what <laughs> we end up having, you know, is this sort of like culture of mediocrity. Yeah. And so, like something like Wonder Woman, I see as an empty silo for the internet to sort of just project its, uh, you know, whatever its its feelings about other things onto. And we're seeing yeah. this, you know, particularly in this year because pop culture has just become a pressure release valve for people's political anxieties exactly. and, and anger. Um, but, but I mean, hopefully at the end of the day, we can be left with something other than Wonder Woman, <laughs> Taylor Swift on the t- cover of Time Magazine, <laughs> and like Beyonce's baby pictures. You yeah, know? Like, yeah. No, I mean, and, and again, I do feel like there is, you know, we are in this time of crisis, like this perpetual crisis, which is made by what is happening in politics, um, but also just the need to grab your attention and be like, oh my God, this is the worst thing ever. And then an hour later, this is actually the worst thing ever. And when you do that, you totally flatten things and you lose that nuance. And so everyone is just as mad as they're, you know, at Trump uh, tweet as they are mad about, um, you know, the new Marvel movie, as they are about, it's just like come everyone's on. a misogynist or a yes queen. Yes, no <laughs> one. It's like come on. No, there, there can, there are more than two things. <laughs> there are more than two things in this world. So to, to kind of jump on the question of mediocrity, I mean, that's kind of been 
stuck with the studio system for a long time. Not everything that came out of that production line was great. We mm -hmm. forget a lot of the bad, the trash, and mm -hmm. the things that you know just never made it to DVD or streaming. Um, so I think it's it's kind of just part of its legacy that mm, you know back then crowds were super crazy about Dr. Kildare, and now <laughs> you would have to really search to find yeah. someone who's seen those movies outside of like TCM. Right. Right. Well, we're incredibly lucky to be living in a city like New York where, yeah. you know, um, as much culture as um, is out there, you know, with the whole spectrum is made available to us in the mm -hmm. city. And we're so lucky. And um, it, we owe it to the world to sort of uh, mine what's come out this year for for the work that is morally ambiguous sometimes and yeah. for the stuff that is, you know, uh, difficult to talk about. And I feel like there's a tendency uh, to just gravitate towards the easiest sort of low-hanging fruit and um, yeah I think part of that's also access um, because like I didn't grow up in New York this is now you know the kid in a candy store mm -hmm. kind of feeling mm -hmm. um, but before I didn't have access to that I either got it through TCM or through a library um, and lucky enough you know DVDs later on and things like that but there's, there's also that question of access because, you know, Wonder Woman was, in, was put in thousands of theaters across the country versus, you know, how many theaters Lady Bird is in or, right. um, or any independent release, really. Yeah, but again, I think that comes down to the issue of critics and programmers really coming out and supporting right. things mm -hmm. that are good. Yeah. And I mean, again, like, you know, yeah, do bad Yeah, about the, uh, the issue of, you know, making change happen from a uh, low sort of from the ground up. Yeah, yeah. Because, I mean, um, obviously Harvey Weinstein, a bad man who made a lot of bad art. And, like, you look at what indie films were before and now it's sort of, like, incredibly depressing. It's just these, uh, you know, bizarre sort of star vehicles, you know, for somebody who wants to show their serious side or maybe get... And then something like Lady Bird comes along and it's like, oh, okay, this is not groundbreaking, but it's a great movie it's an enjoyable movie and um i don't know it's like a nice a nice way to spend your time as opposed to something that is you know a little bit more the sort of just flows over you like a marvel movie but those are super long i'm sorry it's such easy it's so easy to make fun of them i should really stop dc movies <laughs> DC movies. Yes. i think there's um a question about how to reconcile like the crazy stuff that happened with Harvey Weinstein, like hiring the IDF to like go after his victims and shit yeah. like that. And like stuff that happens daily in our workplace. And exactly. sometimes, you know, you feel like, you know, just like reading the stories is a form of catharsis for people. And but but the danger in that is that it, it actually distracts you or diverts your attention from facing the immediate reality of your daily surroundings. Mm -hmm. And what we I guess we have to sort of either separate that or find a way to realistically reconcile the reality of reading about Harvey Weinstein um, and what our daily lives are like because ultimately, you know, like being um, people who work in the arts, you, you stay after hours, your hours are completely unmanageable sometimes. Yes. Um, and Drinking is networking. Drinking yeah. is networking, <laughs> you're out all the time, and you're lucky, like we're lucky to be able to do that, but the lines are so blurry. Exactly. You know, and um, of course I, I think we've all been in a position where um, you feel like you'd be turning down an opportunity. Or you um, want to keep the collegial atmosphere. Exactly. Like, right. you know, yeah, exactly. exactly. Yeah. Or that you do worry about the retaliation of speaking mm. out against, you know, yeah. this higher up. 
mm-hmm. uh, because he's friends with everyone else. Yeah. Right. right, yeah. And, you know, there are people who are, I, I won't name anybody, but they're out there for sure. They're in very powerful positions, even, you know, in the, in the for-profit and the not-for-profit in the studio world and in the independent world. I mean, it's just... Um, but the lines are so blurry, and uh, I don't have an answer. I mean, that's, I think that that kind of speaks to what this kind of Weinstein effect, if that's happening, uh, or that's what we want to call it, uh, where we're seeing these stories come up in different industries. You know, I think yesterday or the day before, there were two stories out of the restaurant industry. There were stories coming out of the tech industry. Mm-hmm. We're kind of sharing these stories in a way in between industries that might have we might have never. Yeah, that's really interesting because I don't doubt that, you know, things are, you know, maybe even worse in like the tech industry and the legal industry. Is well, even just yeah. things that are not white collar work. Right. Yeah. You know, I oh, think yeah. I think that is a huge problem that is like, again, like who who loves Twitter? People who work in offices. Like <laughs> it's kind of, you know, you're there at your desk and you're like, OK, but it's it's a, yeah, it is a serious problem. Like, how do we again? And I think, again, that is sort of siloed and that work in this, co- you know, in this country again, is sort of so specific to industry and in that there can't just be sort of a bigger, larger sort of union or communion that happens with, around these issues. And um, hopefully, hopefully it keeps spreading, but we keep having these sorts of conf- conversations, but. Yeah, because I think that the, you know, the hypocrisy is underscored so much more when you're looking at the the sexism in a industry that is uh, supposedly progressive, exactly. politically and morally, um, and so that that uh, to me is a reason why you know this whole movement kind of started with with film, um, and sort of like expanded out. Um, oh, yes, go ahead. things that happened in the 70s was it, with the, um, there was this brief period where there were directors like Altman and Mazursky and Bogdanovich and, um, um, and Scorsese and Coppola, but the, I'm thinking of the little older ones who were making sort of auteur European style films and there were women in them. And then suddenly, you know, it was getting away from the studios, getting away from the Doris Day. I mean, the studios, at, you, you had to have women in your films. You had to appeal to a wom- women in the audience. So. You, th- there was a whole roster of female stars equal to male stars. Then these people went out on their own and started making guy films. I mean, Coppola and Scorsese and De Palma made lurid, sort of sexist films. <laughs> and th- there was no uh, obligation to either include women or appeal to them. And this has continued to this day, whether it's the, the superhero movies or the, the franchises or, or the, the really good guy films. But I think gradually, 
I mean, the thing that I love about Lady Bird is it's about a woman's separation from a mother. I mean, a woman needs to, this is the most difficult thing for a woman to become an artist, is the separation from the mother. She's all, I mean, in the, in the great novels of James and, and Jane Austen, the woman has to, the mother has to get lost for the, not, not exist for the woman to emerge. So you've got that, and in the end of that movie, I mean, she's had two guys who've sort of failed her in different ways, and she's back with her best friend dancing with her friend you know, at the prom. And there's something just, I mean, glorious about that. And then you've got um, uh, Dee Reese and, and Ava DuVernay and all these black women doing great movies and lots of good women in, in Mudbound. So, I mean, I just think, really, the situation is just, I mean, to me, just taking a, 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 a really a market turn for the better uh, mm -hmm. in, in just recently. And I think, of course, it's women writers. I mean, even this year, um, Steven Spielberg's film is by a woman writer. It's over the transom. This uh, Liz Hanna wrote this film about the Washington Post, and the Steven Soderbergh film, Logan Lucky, has a woman screenwriter. And there's some I mean, the, the main parts of men. It's a caper film, but there are two, ter three terrific smaller roles for women in it. So I, I mean, I just think the consciousness is there, and it's just gradually you know, working its way yeah. into the. Middle. I think. Oh. Yeah. So just historically, there were also. There were much more. I know. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, exactly to that. There needs to be women in decision-making roles. There needs to be women producers. There needs to be women executives handing the money and funds and means to be able to make those movies. And I think with more of this conversation, and the big change is going to come with hiring. Until those women are actually in those positions, we're not going to see a change. Well, but I do think the the, the movie industry uh, was more macho. In the, from the 70s on than it ever was before. Yeah, really. yeah, because yeah, there was market research done in the 1950s, and it's like, well, who is actually buying movie tickets? Oh, it's teenage boys, and yeah. ever since that time, there has been a very yeah. desperate attempt to get them by any means and necessary. Global, and the global market. Yes, yeah. exactly. Um, but, I mean, to your point, Monica, I think it's really important that, yes, there are women uh, executives, uh, black female executives of these movie studios, but they need to feel comfortable in they knowing and they need to be supported like you just can't you can't take somebody and stick them in a situation and like be like oh the cream's gonna rise to crop here like only the most qualified person in this room is really going to make it because or the token chosen yes one, exactly yeah. yeah i mean and then i'm not saying that like when women are delicate and they need special treatment i'm saying that like if you are the only woman in the room the dynamics change and there needs to be um, you know, like you're put through many tests and um, not everybody wants to do that and that's fine not to want to put up with uh, a lot of bullshit basically because you're the only woman in the room. But um, yeah, I think, I think it needs to be a more, again, a more integrated sort of change and also changing the work culture. You know, Molly, I think you're totally right that it is sort of like, oh, to be one of the guys to be a Wonder Woman among the guys, right? It's um, there needs it, it needs to be a more holistic appreciation of things that women bring to the table, the strengths that we have. Um, you know, it, not that there are only female strengths, whatever. But you know, it's like an appreciation of female power because you know, again, Harvey Weinstein, everyone loved him. He was like one of the old moguls, and if you're like one of the old moguls, you're actually horrible. You're a horrible person, and you know. Exactly, exactly. So um, we can do another question. Yeah, go ahead. Not to be a buzzkill, but to go back to the culture of mediocrity, I was, saw recently sure. a, a trailer for a movie, a big studio comedy called Father Figures. And essentially the, the, the whole thing is like Terry Bradshaw 
telling Ed Helms and, and Owen Wilson, hey, I had sex with your mom. Um, and it's, you know, it's part of this whole uh, line of films made by committee, overseen by MBAs, where ostensibly progressive people write this retrograde sexist garbage mm -hmm. that makes the sexual politics of Animal House look sophisticated by comparison. And I'm wondering, you know, these guys aren't necessarily monsters, maybe they are, but I'm wondering if, if, if in, this, in this evolution we can look forward to seeing some recognition of the fact that this stuff is, it's not, it's not raunchy, it's not funny, it's, it's just kind of sexist garbage. I wanted to get your thoughts about that a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't like art by committee. I think it's bad. I'm gonna come out, I'm gonna make a strong appeal. I know it's very brave of me, have high five, pat on the back. But it's, yeah, no, I, and I mean, the fact that Hollywood is really struggling right now to sort of find an audience that isn't just sort of relying on global box office receipts to excuse um, stuff that's not very good. Um, and again, the, the, I wrote a feature um, for Film Comment earlier this year about comedy and how there is sort of this weird dearth of good comedy because you know, so much of what makes us laugh has to do with you know, culture, language, and these things don't necessarily translate overseas, and I'm not gonna be like, those damn Chinese are killing our movies, but it's, it's a problem where you can't recognize the uniqueness of the characters and that they have to be sort of like, you know, again, as you say, pushing against these imaginary, this imaginary rudeness that it's like, well, everything's rude now. Like, come on, who, who is this shocking to? Marguerite Duras, like, what is the point of this? But, <laughs> I mean, the biggest deciding factor for Hollywood is always going to be money. Yeah. Did that comedy actually make money? And for it to tank, for it to be so bad, that's what's going to finally change the attitude and say, okay, we're not going to do this again. Let's try Bridesmaids again or something else because Hollywood loves to repeat itself. Uh, I think that's going to be the big deciding factor for, I agree, i also not a fan of mediocre comedies. But I think there's a lot of interesting comedies that came out this year. You know, there's a really interesting conversation around Get Out, which was horror, but also had comedic as aspects. Uh, Girls Trip I saw a few weeks ago, which was hilarious. I don't believe they screened it for critics. If they did, it was very limited. Uh, and then it was just word of mouth. And it was like one of the biggest movies this summer. So I think it's not dead yet, but it needs well, there are also, uh, uh, if you look at television and series, there's so many great women comic performers. Mm -hmm. I mean, they're just everywhere. I, mean, I think that they've changed the, the, the face of comedy, on, uh, certainly on television and performance, and performance art, yeah. Stand up. Yeah. We get another, go ahead. So I guess I've been oh, talking about something you mentioned um, way at the beginning about the Irene Dunn and Charles Boyer movie. Um, I've been watching a lot of 30s and 40s movies recently and pretty much all of them to a T have some scene where the woman is at work and spanked or like, you know, it's there's a lot of sexual harassment um, whenever they're, it's in the workplace or they're attempting to get a job or something like that. Uh, and I was just kind of wondering what you think about why that sort of stopped happening in movies. Obviously it still happens in the workplace now, um, but it just, I feel like after maybe the 40s, it kind of just not fell out of fashion, but you know what I mean? It's, we don't see it as much in movies at all. And I was wondering if that's cultural or institutional or what? Well, I, I don't know. I think we, we may see as harassment activity that they would not have seen that way. I'm not sure about the scenes you're talking about. I mean, the one I referred to, you don't see it, but you hear about it, certainly that was. But she tossed it off lightly. 
Um, first of all, there weren't that many movies about women in the workplace because there weren't many women working. But and, and so Hollywood it was actually ahead of the of the pop population as a whole by having women in the workplace. Um, I don't know. My sense of it is that, that that women were holding their own pretty well in most of those '30s films. So that if there was something like that, it was considered this is probably what goes on. You know, when you have men and women together anywhere, mm -hmm. this is the problem. You know, the sparks will fly and something will happen. So the workplace gets sexualized and. That's what you have to work against, but then when you, you know, after hours that becomes, it's sort of, there's a blurry line there. So I'm not sure, I'd have to see it to see what I thought. But I think our feeling about, what, what I think sometimes it's not, it's not so much what's actually happened, happening on the screen as how the two characters are handling it and how we think they come out. And the women usually come out with their dignity intact. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, there was a feeling for strong women, way, as I say, way ahead of what was going on in the part. This is what was, it was aspirational. I mean, women looked at these women, and I think this was the sort of beginning of the emergence of the women's movement and everything, just those strong women, for the most part. And I'm not sure that it disappeared entirely from film. Maybe it wasn't as prominent. Same way, uh, you know, in the early 20s, they did a lot more, like, horribly offensive, stereotypical, you know, portrayals of different ethnicities. And then that kind of died away a little bit in the 40s, but not entirely, it's still there. Um, because I just, you know, the apartment comes to mind when I'm thinking about that. Mm -hmm. uh, what happens to the poor elevator girl is just terrible. But I think it just, you know, kind of evolved in different ways. Because, yeah. I mean, film, a lot of the time, film and TV, are trying to work through things that are happening in society. Again, it comes down to this question of wish fulfillment. Um, and now with this, uh, you know, sort of Me Too stuff, it's sort of coming to the level of who's actually making it, which is interesting to see. Um, because we can't get rid of Donald Trump because of all these women who have accused him of being a rapist or groper, uh, disgusting to interact with. Um, but we want that. Um, but I think, again, it comes down to this question of, like, I, I feel like it changes, and sometimes the way it changes can be more subtle and more pernicious if you think of films where it's like, oh, like Mermaid, or a movie where a woman is like an alien and she comes into the body of a sexy woman and she's just exploring and she doesn't know anything about the planet. And so the first guy she meets is the most incredible guy ever, even though he's ugly and boring and has a crappy job. And she's just like, oh, wow, show me your ways about toast eating and all this stuff. That's like, so and it's, it's supposed to be funny, but it's really setting a horrible precedent for men and women that mediocre men feel entitled to beautiful women. And, you know, that there can be this huge gap and that um, women who are very talented, who are very beautiful, who are very smart, perhaps have supersonic light speed technology on their hands, they have to settle for less. And like, it's, it's um, I'm, I'm sort of undermining my point by throwing all these silly details in, but it's still a, a real thing. And I think we need to be, again, vigilant and have a conversation about them and, you know, don't ban mermaid, that's... That's what I'm going to say. How about weird science? <laughs> One thing I'd like to ask, you know, that I, I was brought up, in this, and of course Southern too, this is another, <laughs> another a layer of, of reactionariness, is um, the idea that, of course, men had the power, but also they had these fragile egos. Yes. So that we would defer to them. I mean, God forbid that we were ball busters or something. Mm -hmm. So I think this, this sort of feeds into a, a sort of hesitation when a man comes on to a woman, you, don't, you just don't want to 
obliterate him, even if you, if you know you really like want to. <laughs> so you sort really? of really <laughs> allow a certain, give him a certain leeway that you, that you shouldn't. But I think part of that is is from that impulse. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I don't know. Is that still? Do, do women still? Men still have well, fragile eagles. Yes. <laughs> it's, still, it's still kind of cultural. Yeah, I, I think you know, so. You don't want a certain deference, a little, yeah. bit. a little yeah. bit. Yeah, yeah. 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 In a lot of the stories that have come out, a lot of women are just like, "Well, I just let him finish because it was easier than yeah, yeah, yeah. pushing him off or doing yeah. something about it." Well, and there's also the threat of not just being raped. There's the threat of being choked to death, to being beaten. Like there are so many. Like I mean. Yeah, the yeah, as Louis C.K. said, you know, women are right. I would almost rather have any of those than have to look at Harvey Weinstein naked in his bathroom. I know. <laughs> <laughs> we don't anything. So. Yeah, but I mean, yeah, I mean, yeah, to cite Louis C.K., who like successfully yeah. passed off his creepiness as this relatable comedy, and, and then like nobody said no when he was. Yeah, because you can't. Because you're shocked. They liked it, didn't they? Didn't yeah. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's it's just yeah, and again, I think. Oh. Yeah, we have the opportunity now to sort of like talk through this with, you know, boyfriends, husbands, brothers, male friends, and be like, well, you know, when you're in this situation, this is what is going on in my mind as a woman. And this is, you know, and it gives you that opportunity to sort of share that experience and be like, hey, this is maybe why women don't like throw a chair at Louis C.K., even though that would be a good option. Like, you're just terrified. But we'll take one more question if we have one. Hi. Hi. Um, it's nice to hear you guys talk about this. I'm coming from a very different industry, but one obviously that's also been in the news. I'm a chef. Um, so uh, I think for me, sort of relatedly to be a female sort of stepping into a, a quote unquote boys club when you're the only female in the room many of the time, um, the, I, I've found sort of historically that there's been a sense of women uh, competing with each other to be the only woman in the room. Mm -hmm. And that one thing that has been wonderful about Me Too has been a sense that women can find a way to start to collaborate instead of to compete. Um, and I'm wondering if you can talk about how you might see that shift within film and how uh, women can, I, and I, see, I think I see this sort of an interpersonal friendship level too that I found in my industry, the other women who I work with are the people who are pushing me the hardest, who are the most critical um, and who are uh, the most demanding uh, of my bosses way, and coworkers. You mean in a good way? In, in, in a good way, but also in, in a way, and I think in a, certainly in a way where there's a sense of women must be held to a higher standard in order oh, yeah. to, to, you know, excel the, the twice the same for yeah, half as much. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And um, that I'm wondering, I certainly think that's a, a universal idea, but wondering about how you feel, especially in with Me Too, um, how that might shift or how we might as women and as professionals uh, be kinder to each other and um, sort of help each other along. No, I think that's a, that's a very good point. But I, th I, I think women, from my experience, watching over the years, are so much, feel so much more of a sense of solidarity now than they used to. Um, I think that's the one thing that I do think has changed. I mean, I just, it may be in certain, certain offices, I, if you're the only woman, I can see how that would be 
a more delicate situation, but it just, I, and I think the Me Too does express that. There really is a sense of, of a consensus of, of we're, we're here for each other, we've got each other's back, that kind of thing, and I think that's, that's absolutely an energy that, that will continue, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I totally know what you mean, because uh, sometimes, I mean, over the years, I've definitely seen really terrible lady bosses mm. who are so, like, they're super competitive, mm -hmm. almost violently so, mm. and there's, uh, there's, like, almost a sort of revenge thing yeah. being played out, where all of the wrongdoings that they have had done onto them, they're now sort of, like, refracting mm. and, and reflecting back out on and channeling into, like, the uh, only other woman who's in the room, mm. you know? Um, which is super counterproductive. Yes. Uh, one thing to never do, I think, is mm -hmm. to play the victim, and I think that's sometimes like, sometimes testimony can fall into um, victimhood very easily, and I, I think it's important to just like be strong, maintain your integrity, and keep doing good work. And I, I do think that this energy that's been created by all of this should help carry us and bring us together. I mean, part of it is, you know, making yourself available to others as well. Mm -hmm. I'm very big proponent of, you know, being a mentor. If you even know just a little bit, you have a little bit of skill to pass on to the next generation. Um, you know, I came up in the, like, Boston scene for uh, film critics, and that was, you know, I was usually one of the only, if not the only woman in the room reviewing a movie. Um, I didn't have anyone to go to. I didn't have Molly. I didn't have friends like I do here um, in the same way. But then I found mentors through other male colleagues who were, you know, helpful and open to me asking all the, you know, silly questions and, you know, how do I contact a publicist and the very, like, simple basis of our job. Um, they showed me the ropes. Um, part of that is also, um, yeah, just being very supportive of others. If you have equals who are going through a you know, hard time, make sure they know that they can come to you with any kind of a problem and confide in you. Because it's, it's a very tight-knit industry, kind of like ours. Uh, somebody always knows somebody who always works in this other restaurant who knows the other person. Mm -hmm. And you know, it's, it's a, such a nice thing to know to be like someone's safe harbor, that they can come to you and talk things through, even if it's just over coffee and like, what do I do next? Yeah, that's, I think that's the big thing around this as well, is that we now know we're not in this alone. We know other people have yeah. gone through this and can rely on them. Yeah, because I think it's such a power dynamic thing yeah. mm -hmm. when um, you have a lady boss and, and her maybe in previous generations, like your one point of reference is like other terrible bosses who are male and mm -hmm. like that's your that's the language that you learn to mm -hmm. to deal with this kind of like power structure yeah. Um, but yeah hopefully it is more of a generational thing and because i definitely noticed that in programming there is m much more of a sense of community um between venues uh between from programmer to programmer there isn't a sense of like flag planting you know like this belongs to me you know this kind of that kind of attitude is has sort of died down over the years, which yeah. I'm very grateful for. And yeah. it sometimes just gets tiring being the only Smurfette in the village. Mm -hmm. yeah. So it's nice <laughs> to also be able just to talk about like the daily, you know, dealings of work. It doesn't have to necessarily be like, my boss was a creep to me today. Let me tell you about it. It can just be, wow, work is really hard. You know, stress is happening. My family is whatever. Um, you know, 
being able to find camaraderie, camaraderie in your industry is really important. Yeah, and I, the, I, the last thing I'll say is just that, um, again, I think it comes down to this question of needing to sort of stroke a man's ego or sort of be a little bit gentler versus knowing another woman doesn't necessarily need that, but we do, we definitely do. Like, you can't just sort of go around, um, you know, again, as Lisa said, enacting the trauma that was enacted on you. Like, you ha there has to be a different way. And again, this comes down to the question of like, yeah, you shouldn't ban all movies that are made by a creeper. You shouldn't ban, you know, you shouldn't censor things. You shouldn't, you know, and, and just sort of this process of finding a different and better way because so much of the stuff that's just handed down to us is just kind of faulty and it's our responsibility to question it and make things better in the future. So on that hopeful note, thank you for coming. <laughs>